0: Hello and welcome to episode two of the Keywords podcast. Keywords is a partnership between Literature Works and Exeter Canal and Key Trust, developing the historic Exeter Custom House as a hub for literature. We're programming lots of types of literature activity down on the quayside. You can find out more about the programme via the Keywords website, which is www.exetercustomhouse.org.uk. Today, we're going to hear from Katie Corkwell, a storyteller who's based in Devon. Katie has been commissioned to bring some of the stories of the Custom House to life in September. Eels, Eagles and Unicorns, Hidden Nature at the Custom House will be streaming at the Keywords website during the week of the 11th to 18th of September for Heritage Open Days. Katie has been telling stories for nearly 25 years, working nationally and internationally. You can find out more about her work as a storyteller at www.katiecorkwell.co.uk. Since moving to Devon in 2015, Katie has been teaching storytelling to adults in workshop settings, student performances, and coaching. She also set up Artemis Storytelling, which brings the best of UK performance storytelling to Exeter. Find out more about this at www.artemis-storytelling.co.uk. Today, Katie will be in conversation with Literature Work CEO, Helen Challender. Welcome, Helen and Katie. Over to you.
1: Thank you very much for that introduction, Michelle. I'll be asking a few questions of Katie, who worked with us on our pilot season of keywords at Exeter Custom House in the summer of 2019 and ran a pop up storytelling weekend, which was hugely popular, including performance and workshops. So it's our pleasure to have Katie back with us writing these or telling these stories very specifically about the building and the amazing uh, features and creatures that that, that, that are in there. Um, so I just wanted to ask you first, Katie, um, you know, storytelling's um, a very popular and um, accessible form of words and literature. How did you get into storytelling in the first place?
2: Hello, Helen. Great to um, be here and working with you on this. Uh, So I I think most storytellers have a story about how they they first came across storytelling, because although it is becoming increasingly popular. It's still quite a, a niche art form. Um, and for me, well, I was lucky enough to, to catch it at a young age. Uh, I was 13 years old. My parents took my brother and I to Kingsland Art Centre, where the company of storytellers were doing a, a kind of winter Christmassy show. And uh, that was the first storytelling I encountered. And I was completely captivated Uh, So the company of storytellers was Hugh Lupton, Sally Pom Clayton and Bed Haggerty. And though I didn't realise it at the time, they were, you know, the pioneers of the storytelling revival in this country. And they're still some of the very best performance storytellers in the UK. So I sought out more and more storytelling as a teenager. I loved it. Um, But it wasn't really until university when I started having a go myself. Uh, And particularly important at that time, there was a a writer's centre in Wales that ran storytelling courses and retreats uh, and that was very important for my development as a storyteller. Uh, I think also setting up a storytelling club at university was a little bit the blind leading the blind, we were all very enthusiastic, we didn't really know what we were doing but it was a great discipline of having to prepare a story every week for our meetings so that was, that was when I first started storytelling myself.
1: Thank you very much. Um, So I think you have worked with a range of storytellers and you promote storytellers through Artemis and bring them to Exeter, which we're very lucky to have and grateful for. Um, And just wondered if you would tell me a little bit more about the types of storytelling work that you are involved with and where you tell stories.
2: So so one thing I love about my job is its variety, and I end up telling stories in some weird and wonderful places sometimes. Uh, But I I see my work as having a few main strands. I develop uh, performances for adult audiences, and I take them to the network of storytelling clubs around the country. Some of these are very informal, the back room of a pub. Some of them are much more formal, kind of small theatre spaces. storytelling festivals both in this country and abroad. Uh, So I love that you know developing a really um, sort of meaty involved performance piece for adult audiences but I also do a lot of educational work and take my stories into schools for children and students of all ages or I find myself working in an educational way in other settings in in museums for example or, or outdoor spaces and then since in the last 5 years particularly actually i've been teaching storytelling um to adults who are passionate about developing their own storytelling skills and and that's been that's been wonderful development for me actually uh you know working out how i can transfer what i have learned and and share those skills with other people and then there is also the part of my work with Artemis storytelling that involves um promoting storytelling and bringing Uh, you know, the very best UK storytellers to the Exeter
1: area. Um, So we're lucky to have Artemis Storytelling in our our city, and our region. Uh, And um, I know you did a couple of workshops as well as part of Keywords last summer. You ran a workshop for people who were new to storytelling, who wanted to have a go. And Nell, the morning after her performance, ran a workshop for people who'd already done some storytelling. And I'm really fascinated in that workshopping process. Um, Wondered, what is the process of working on a story to get it to the point where you're ready to perform it to people?
2: Yes, uh, and it is um, such a luxury, actually, to have a workshop setting to work on a story with other people because... As a storyteller, much of the time you know i 'm working rehearsing in a pretty solitary way by myself, and it, it always changes when you 're with other people in front of other people in an, interacting. But I guess the first stages of working on a story are usually by myself um, you know there 'll be a kind of research phase where I go out looking for for the stories that I want to tell, or as some people might say it the stories the stories find you. Um, So, for example, for this commission for the uh, custom house that I'm working on at the moment, you know, we've decided to have a story about um, the eel, the eagle and the unicorn who are all hidden within the extraordinary decoration of the building of the custom house. and. Well, it it varies. You know, with The Eagle, I immediately thought of a story that I'd read in a book many years ago and I thought, oh, this would be a wonderful story. So I, you know, I went back to that book and and found the story there. But with the other two, there's been a much more elaborate process of, um, you know, searching on the internet, uh, ordering some books about eels and unicorns and pouring through them. Uh, There's also a very... um, wonderful generous community of other storytellers out there in the uk and i'm part of an email group with quite a few of them Uh, and people are so um willing to share ideas little snippets of folk tale or folklore or um uh you know bits and pieces that they know along the way about eels or or unicorns so um i i get a lot from talking to colleagues or, or emailing with other colleagues and then, when you 've got the material um, and if i 'm working on a really long story, like my last performance piece was this enormous story called Tristan and assault there 's um, lots of different episodes and versions, so I will usually get a huge piece of paper and kind of map them out and decide you know what i 'm going to include, what the narrative structure of the piece will be. but when you 've got that, the kind of what a lot of storytellers call the bones of the story then it's a question of kind of putting aside all the books and the words and the research. And I usually do this bit with my eyes closed, sometimes kind of literally sort of screwed up in a ball or with my head in my hands. And I'm just totally trying to bring the world of the story into being inside my mind. And um, it's usually very painful, that first trying to kind of articulate, tell the story out loud, but, you know, to yourself. and through doing that you begin to inhabit the story to to really see the story and you'll usually along the way find sticking points there might be some bits in the story that aren't quite working or you can't quite see how the how the characters are behaving um and at that point uh well i had a very useful tip from sally pom clayton in a workshop i don't know about 20 years ago which i still I still do. And I write down this list of questions I've got about the story. uh, And I might go and do some more research or really sort of think, well, why does that character do that? Why does the boy fly south when he's been told not to? Um, And then I'll go back into trying to tell the story out loud. And then slowly, slowly, as the story takes shape, I'll begin to... You know, work on the performance of it, the, the physical side of it, the voices, the, um, the the kind of movements and gesture that I might use to, to to perform the story. But as I said at the beginning, the the first time you stand in front of an audience and tell that story, it always shifts and changes. There's something really magical about having people listening, and uh, the way a story develops in in performance in the moment. So yeah, that's a kind of whistle stop tour of how I how I work on stories.
1: That's exciting. That was great. I love hearing that. Um, And there's so much more that there's. It just makes me think of so many more questions because it sounds quite um, a bit all seeing, a bit um, omniscient in the way that the writer of an or yeah the writer of a novel would be. And then there's also the narrator of the novel, Uh, and you're describing a process that you're very much wrapped up in on your own, um, but then you're wanting it to, you, it sounds like you want to have a, a, really, a real richness of understanding of the story and the characters that's available to you as an interaction with the audience so that it will respond and shift depending on what the audience is doing. How, how is that different then from theatre, for example?
2: Yes, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question because it, you know storytelling often takes place in the same place as a, a a theater show. So in that kind of environment, with an audience listening, there's a performer on stage, and of course there are you know there's some big similarities, but there are there's some real differences, and and part of it is that improvisational quality to storytelling that uh, you know every time I tell a story the words come out differently and sometimes you will see something in the moment of performance and you can, you know, you can really react to that and, um, and tell a story in a slightly different way than you've ever told it before uh, because of um, something that comes to you when you're, you're with the audience and you're kind of creating this story together between you. So in, in theatre where actors are They're inhabiting the the character that they're playing Uh, and there might be, you know, huge variety of interpretations that they can bring to that character. But at the end of the day, they've got a script and they're, they're showing how this character behaves in their interaction with the other actors on stage. Whereas the storyteller is always in control of the whole narrative. And you might briefly kind of inhabit one of the characters or give a suggestion as to what they sound like or what they look like with your voice and your your gestures. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, you're not using props or costume and how the audience are are seeing those characters in the story is coming from from them, is coming from their imagination, uh, which makes it a very Active act of listening. Um, to, to be in the audience of a storytelling performance, it's it's not a passive thing. You're you're really contributing to to the uh, the being of the story
1: in that space. If that makes some kind of a sense, and- I think that's fascinating. I really do because that is that has things in common with being the reader of a novel because it's just you and the page, and you're having to imagine and visualize the story you've got the but but the writer of a novel is the author of the story in the way that you as a storyteller you might not be the original author of that actual story but you are the narrator
2: yes that's right and I think that's another difference with theatre that the storyteller has has actively chosen to to tell this story and it's their version of this story um Although I think certainly myself and many others who work with traditional narratives, the excitement also comes from knowing that this story is, is much bigger than you and has been around for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. And, you know, you're just one conduit for it and, and one particular version at one moment in time.
1: Perfect segue into my next question. <laughs> and that is to ask you, Katie, about some of your favourite stories. Yes. Well,
2: it has to be said. My favourite story is usually the one I'm working on right now, because it, it, you know, as you were saying earlier, it does become a bit all-consuming when you're when you're working on a story. You can't you can't stop thinking about it. Um, but over the years, taking the long view, um, there's a, there's a few stories that are my absolute favourite. There's a there's a performance piece I made in my twenties uh, called Rhiannon, based on the Welsh uh, mythology, the Mabinogian, uh, and I, it was a real um, really important moment for me as a storyteller. I was given this commission to develop the piece as a young storyteller, and it really helped develop my storytelling. But it's also a story I have told continuously um, over the years for the last twenty years, and I never tire of it. It's it's so rich in human experience and as i grow older you know when i became pregnant when i had children this all you know made me see the story in a different way and i i hope i will carry on telling it for the rest of my life and i'm sure i'll you know carry on getting more and more out of out of this incredibly rich rich material uh, and then maybe slightly lower key. There's a there's a folk tale called uh, Kate Crackernuts that I'm very fond of because it was one that my mother read me when I was little, and I think, I, I, you know, I particularly loved it because the heroine had the same name as me, um, and I loved it because she's, you know, bold and not afraid, and uh, she rescues her sick sister, and she goes into the fairy hill, and she dares to speak to the king, and I, I've, I've always loved that folktale and again I've been telling it for for many many years and um, every time I you know I really enjoy it I really enjoy telling it.
1: Thank you Kate that's lovely Katie I'm sorry I'm calling you Kate now because of Kate (laughs) Crackernut. Kate Crackernuts yes. I just had one other question and that was about um, place really because um, you know, for Literature Works, it's this absolute pleasure to be working with Exeter Canal and Key Trust on developing a hub for literature in all its many forms at the historic Exeter Custom House on the Quay side. Um, you all you've been you've been in that building as discussed and worked with us a lot. Um, and you've been exploring it and developing your new stories uh for this commission which is, as we know, as Michelle brilliantly introduced, it's for Exeter Heritage Heritage Open Days 2020, the focus of which is hidden nature. And you've developed um, your stories, eels, eagles and unicorns, based on the imagery that's in that building. It won't be long now before we can start working in the building again with audiences, but we're not quite there yet. So, we're going online, and you will not have the live audience of the kind that you describe so brilliantly, the importance of that just now. Um, but uh it is nonetheless an exciting time. Uh, Exeter, we're involved at Literature Works with um Exeter now being a UNESCO city of literature, which means it's part of a global creative cities network. Uh, and I wondered what your thoughts were what would you like to see developing and coming out of all this activity around literature words and stories in our neck of the woods at the moment yes
2: yeah well it was wonderful news really exciting news that extra has got this this designation and become become part of this network and i think well i think when i whenever i organise a storytelling event or or i run a storytelling workshop i mean i obviously hope that everybody who comes is glad to be there and and gets a lot out of it but i think i also hope that there is maybe one person in that audience or or one participant in that workshop for whom the event is is just completely transformative like you know it was for me age 13 in the king's lynn arts centre or me, age twenty, the Writers Centre in Wales. I was literally so excited to have stumbled across this. I, I couldn't sleep um, during that weekend workshop, and I, and I. So I hope that. Um, it, there's the opportunity for more and more people from all parts of the city to engage with with literature in all its many forms. And obviously, I hope storytelling is one of them. And and have those kind of really transforming moments when you, when you feel like your life has changed and you've, you've opened up this doorway into another world.
1: That's what I hope from it. Well, that chimes very much with what we intend and aim for keywords to really open up literature as a very democratic art form.
0: Thank you, Helen and Katie, for that fascinating conversation. It's been great to hear about the process of storytelling. What I think we'd all like now is to see a bit of that storytelling in action. And I think, Katie, you've got a story for us. You're going to tell us a story. So I'll hand over to you.
2: Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. So, um, For the storytelling commission at the Custom House, one of the creatures we discovered in the decoration uh, is the eagle. And uh, it's been quite difficult, really, choosing one eagle story to tell because there are so many powerful eagle stories out there. So I thought I'd share another story that has an eagle in it today. It was not going to be part of the commission, but it's a story I... I first came across a few years ago when I was lucky enough to have a very unusual piece of storytelling work that um, took me to Marrakesh. I was uh, transported there just for, for 24 hours, um, put up in this most luxurious hotel. Uh, I was just expected to tell a, a few stories as pre-dinner entertainment for this big conference that was happening there. And then the next day I was I was flown back. And I think the day after I was I was back in my much more normal life, telling in a secondary school in London in the drizzling rain. And it felt like you know, Marrakesh had been some kind of dream, like some genie had just transported me for a moment into the lap of luxury and then sort of plonked me back down on the streets of my my ordinary life. And this is a story that I found uh, while I was researching Moroccan stories. And it kind of ended up having a, a similar theme to it. You see, once upon a time, there was a tailor. He had a little shop that was also his workshop down a back street in Marrakesh. And one day, there he was, sitting on the floor of his workshop, stitching away, when he suddenly became aware there was someone in the doorway. And he looked up and, oh, there was a rather lovely young woman standing there, dressed in the most exquisite bright pink jalaba. Well, she certainly wasn't one of his usual customers. And he wondered what she wanted, what he could possibly offer her. But she just stood there looking at him, her eyes smiling. And then suddenly she laughed and she beckoned, and she turned and she disappeared off into the street. Well, the tailor, he didn't need asking twice. He, he cast down his sewing. He jumped up. He, he ran to the doorway. Oh, where had she gone? Oh, yes, there she was. He caught a flash of bright pink in the crowds and he began to push his way down the street, trying to keep her in view. And she turned off down another little alleyway and he followed and right down this street, left down another She began to lead him a dance across the city. And the tailor, he tried to keep up with her, just tried to keep her in view as she led him through parts of the city he'd never been in before. And then at last she stopped before a great white wall. There was a little door in the wall and he saw her take a little golden key from her waist and fit it to the keyhole, open the door. And then for the first time since she'd come to the shop, she turned, smiled at him, beckoned once again and disappeared inside. While the tailor, he took a deep breath, he crossed the street and he followed her through that doorway. And he came out into the most beautiful room. There were mosaic tiles on the ceilings, on the floor. There were silk cushions scattered everywhere. There were great bowls of rose water, with rose petals floating in it, the perfume in the air. There was goblets of wine and a plate of little honey cakes. And the young woman, she was clapping her hands in an imperious kind of a way, and in through an archway ran a little gaggle of what must be her maidservants, and they surrounded the tailor giggling and they drew him off through the archway into another room and the tailor saw that in this room there was a bath sunk into the floor steaming hot and what were they doing they were surrounding him they were they were pulling off his his old dirty clothes and and he felt a bit self-conscious he tried to stop them but they they were very persistent. They drew off his clothes and giggling, they pushed him under the water. And there they soaped his shoulders and they shampooed his hair. And as the dirt and the dust of the city washed away from him, the tailor finally relaxed a little in the water. And then they were drawing him out and toweling him down and rubbing sweet oils into his skin and giving him a fine set of clothes and and pulling him back into the first room and there the young woman she was sitting now on the cushions a little goblet of wine in her hand and she waved away her servants and then she gestured for the tailor to come and join her she poured him a little cup of wine now she said i expect you're wondering what all this is about. And the tailor, well, he he couldn't speak. He just nodded dumbly. Well, she said, if you haven't already guessed, this is part of the palace of the Sultan. And I, well, I'm one of the Sultan's many daughters. And, well, my father, he's decided that it's about time I got married. But you should see the suitors he's lined up for me. I'm not interested in any of them. So no, I thought I'd take matters into my own hands. I'd go out into the city and see for myself. Well, my eye fell on you. I thought you'd scrub up nicely. And so, that's why I brought you here. You have a choice now. You can go back out the door and, well, you'll never see me again. But if you choose, you can stay here. These rooms can be yours for a while. I well, I'll come when I can. My duties as a princess keep me keep me rather busy. But I will come when I can, and we can, well, we can get to know each other a little, and then well, we can take it from there. So, what do you choose, the tailor? He just went on staring at her. Was this some kind of dream? Had some genie just transported him into this place, made him this offer? He, he nodded again. Yes, he said, I I choose to stay. Thank you. Good, said the princess. Well, that's excellent. And she jumped up. I'll leave you in peace, she said, to, to settle in. You can go in any of these rooms, uh, only you see that cupboard there? You see that door? Don't open the door. Don't open the cupboard. That's all I ask. And then she was gone, slipping across a little courtyard to a door beyond. And the tailor was left alone. Well, he took another sip of his wine and then he got up and he began to explore his new surroundings. There was the room they'd been sitting in. There was the room with the bath. There was another room with a sumptuous bed and a canopy filled with beautiful ornaments and these three rooms enclosed a little courtyard, somewhere to sit in the sunshine, somewhere to sit in the shade, flowers, butterflies. It was all perfectly delightful. And so the tailor's new life in the palace began. The maidservants, they brought him whatever food, whatever drink he needed and The princess, well, she came when she could, but as she'd said, there was a lot of business in the palace that took her away and the tailor spent an awful lot of time by himself. And there was nothing for him to do. His clothes were provided far finer than any he could make. And it wasn't long before there was a visitor to that place, squatting in the corner, grinning up at him, And the name of that visitor was Boredom. And sitting next to Boredom, grinning up at him, was curiosity. What could possibly be in that cupboard? She'd planted a seed, and that seed had had swollen, had split, had taken root within him, and now the tendrils of needing to know had him in their grip. What could it possibly be? So amazing, so terrible that he mustn't see. And it began to consume him. He thought, I will just have a little peek. I will never breathe a word of what I see. She will never know. And so one day, when the princess had just left, he could bear it no longer. He went across to the cupboard. He opened the door. And out of the darkness, suddenly there flew a great eagle. An eagle flew out from behind that door, up into the ceiling. It circled around the room and then it flew straight at him. The eagle's talons gripped him by the shoulders. The eagle's sharp beak pecked out the tailor's eyes. He screamed. The maidservants, they came running. But when they saw what had happened, when they saw the blood streaming from the tailor's eyes, they went straight for the princess. And she came, striding across the courtyard into the room. She held up her hand and the eagle circled once and came to land on her fist. And she soothed it, stroking the soft feathers on its breast. And then she went across to the cupboard. She opened the door. And she put the bird back into the darkness. And then she reached up and from a high shelf she took a bowl of clear liquid and she took a a white cloth from a little pile of white cloths and she dipped the white cloth in the liquid and she put it over the tailor's eyes. And at once, oh, blessed relief from the pain. And she wound that cloth around his head. What a shame, she said. What a shame. I really thought you were the one. But it seems not. I need a husband who can stand the, the boredom of palace life. I need a husband I can trust. And he felt... "'her soft hand in his. "'He felt himself being led over to the little door. "'He heard the little golden key turning in the lock "'and then they were outside in the street. "'He could hear the noise of the city. "'He could feel the the dust and the hot air on his skin.' And now she was leading him, briskly, through the streets, this way and that, until he was completely disoriented. And finally, in through a doorway, he felt her hands on his shoulders pushing down. He sat on the floor and she was gone. Just a whiff of her perfume in the room. And the tailor, he reached up and he peeled back the bandage across his eyes and... Amazing. His eyes were healed. He could see as clearly as he could before. There was not a trace of the wound. He looked about him. Well, of course, you can guess where he was, back in his workshop. There was the sewing that he'd left behind in haste when she'd first come. And the tailor sighed. He knew there was no way he'd ever find his way back through the city to that little doorway. He knew he was never going to see her again. But, wow, at least he had his work once again. At least here he was, in the middle of the throbbing, busy, lively city. He picked up his sewing and he began to stitch. And now, well now when people came to his shop, he not only had clothes to sell them, he had a story to tell. The only trouble was nobody believed a word of it. It was so extraordinary. But the thing with stories is that sometimes they don't need to be believed to be worth telling. And so the story began to spread across the city, across the lands, through the years. Somebody wrote the story down in a book and eventually it came to me. And now I've told you that story. Maybe, maybe you'll be inspired to tell somebody else to be just a little part of that story's journey through the world.
0: Thank you, Katie, for that brilliant story. What a brilliant way to end this podcast. If you'd like to hear more about storytelling and keywords, don't forget to look out for Eels, Eagles and Unicorns, which is coming to the keywords website in September at www.extocustomhouse.org.uk and that's where you'll also find all of the information about our upcoming program. Thank you for listening.